Hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, a mid-season bonus episode. A couple weeks ago, Micaiah and I got together and talked about what we believe is the best album by The National, Trouble Will Find Me. Just recently... 33 and a third released a volume on their album boxer written by Ryan Pinkard. And we have him with us today to make his case for why their maybe breakthrough album should be considered their best. We're not going to take any more time with an introduction, but we want to let you hear from two independent record stores of the week, one in Portland, Oregon, and the other in Denver, Colorado. We'll let you hear from today's sponsor, Anchor, and then we'll be back with our guest, Ryan Pinkert. During our conversation with Ryan, we asked him what his favorite independent record stores were. Here's what he had to say. Here in Portland, Oregon, um, if you're a, a, a record hound like like i've never been in a place that had more <laughs> amazing record stores like they're just everywhere but um my number one is uh most definitely mississippi records it's small um they also have a label that releases some pretty phenomenal music the curation is like second to none i think it's my favorite record store in the world you go in there prices are insanely low for new records the curation is you know they have guarantee a sign saying they guaranteed have at least 100 sun raw records like in stock at any time for a real crate digger it's like so amazing um and uh yeah their use selection is pretty great too then in denver i have to shout out wax tracks records probably the records are that you know shaped my <laughs> music taste the most growing up uh and uh, yeah, they're just an institution in Denver and uh, great prices, incredible use selection, a whole lot of history. Again, we want to shout out Mississippi Records, located at 5202 North Albina Avenue in Portland, Oregon, 97217. They are open seven days a week from noon to 7 p.m. You can reach them by phone at 503 282 2990 and you can check out their website mississippirecords.net to find all of their latest releases from the label and what they have in stock and let's not forget denver colorado's own wax tracks records wax tracks is located at 638 east 13th avenue denver colorado 80203 they are open monday through friday from 11 a.m to 8 p.m saturday and sunday from 10 a.m to 8 p.m you can also find them online at waxtracksrecords.com My name's Ryan Pankard. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a music writer, editor. Um, I just uh, wrote the 33 and a third book on Boxer. Um, um, and yeah, I'm a, I guess a music journalist. <laughs> I've, uh, I've worked as an editor at um, 
title, the streaming service for years. Um, did a lot of, uh, ran their whole website, uh, and curated, uh, all the, the insides of that. And, um, yeah, uh, besides that do a lot of commercial work on the, on the side. Uh, this, this book is kind of my big return to, uh, music writing. Um, I've also, uh, worked on some podcasts, written and produced some podcasts. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm a pretty big fan of the national. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So is, is it, you, you chose to write about boxer for the 33 and a third series. So, so I guess there's two questions here. One would be of, of all of the bands you could cover. Why the national? And once you decided you were going to write about the national, why boxer? Or, or did, did the album come first and, and that was ultimately the, the impetus or was it thinking about the national and then picking that album? So how did, how did that process work and, and why this artist and why that album? Sure. Um, I mean, shortest answer is I love the national. Um, and I, um, I also knew their management, <laughs> which was a, a big, uh, decider, um, I, uh, knowing, you know, knowing that I could tell the story potentially with the band, um, was, a a big differentiator in terms of, you know, choosing this, this band, um, over others. Um, so I knew I kind of had that lead and approached them about the idea and, um, they were really interested. They, they loved the series and, um, were honored to be considered. And so, um, I was able to pitch the book, uh, knowing that, you know, they would be attached to it. Then, um, yeah, when it comes to picking boxer, um, I guess, you know, gun to my head, it is my favorite national album. It's definitely the one that has been with me the longest. I kind of, you know, first, you know, fell in love with the band, um, after they released boxer, which I think, uh, a lot of people did. The more I researched it as well, it just, just like, seemed like, I don't know, uh, the most, dare I say, important and interesting album in the band's, like, story. Beyond that, uh, it's also celebrating its 15th anniversary uh, next month, which I just, uh, um, yeah, was icing on the cake, I guess. book you reveal that ultimately what kind of hooked you on to the national was being exposed to them in the 
REM Modest Mouse national tour in late 2007. I guess you saw them at Red Rocks. That's right. Yeah. I, um, I grew up just outside of Red Rocks, uh, in Colorado. And, um, at the time, yeah, it was actually, I think summer of 08, like the year after, um, boxer came out, but, um, but yeah, that was a, that was a pretty monumental tour for the band in terms of getting a, a whole lot more exposure, having that cosign and, um, modest mouse is at the time kind of still one of my all-time favorite bands but at the time it was definitely my favorite band so really went to see them got there bright and early so we'd be right up front and then in broad daylight um the national comes out and uh, just blows uh my socks off along with my friends and uh, <laughs> it was uh that's all she wrote <laughs> well tell us about working with the band for this book, what was what was it like recording those interviews? What was what was the experience like uh, being able to sit down with them for this book? Because I mean, really, uh, as Mackay and I have have both read it, um, I mean, you really have access. I mean, you you get to you get to do a lot of interviews with with the band members, and they don't pull any punches. I mean, they they're really honest with you about what they were going through and some of the good, the bad, and the ugly of that experience, especially recording this album. So what was it like just to be around this band and to have that kind of access for the book? Sure. Um, I mean, it was a dream come true. <laughs> um, uh, you know, once the, uh, once, you know, the, the feeling of, you know, talking to dudes you really, really love and admire uh, kind of wears off. It was, um, you know, yeah. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Like, uh, they're just the sweetest, like most generous, thoughtful dudes. Like, and I've, you know, interviewed quite a few well-known musicians and, uh, there's, I don't know, there's, they're just the sweetest anti-rock stars you'll ever meet, even though they are rock stars. Um, and yeah, I couldn't believe how generous they were with their time. I think I talked to Matt alone for like, I don't know, five hours or something on top of, you know, we did a big call and group the band together and then, you know, all everyone else was, yeah, at least everyone in the band was a few hours each. Um, Aaron was the hardest to, I got the least amount of time with, cause as you know, he's, he's a little the, busy these days, busiest man on planet earth. Um, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty cool, but uh, I don't know. The most amazing thing was just being able to tell this, the gift of being able to tell the story through their eyes um, was was just incredible. Like I, I don't know, I could have easily written a book about how I feel and think about boxer. Um, and um, you know, there's some amazing books in the 33 and the third series that are, you know, entirely like, you know, critical essays um, about whatever album. Um, but uh, it was so amazing to be able to chronicle kind of, tell their history um, through their own words and memories and feelings. It just felt a, a lot truer than anything I could have written alone. <laughs> well, I feel like that's also necessary. I was talking to Ryan about this earlier when we were messaging about, you know, doing the podcast. Cause I was thinking while reading, I was like, man, I'm enjoying this so much and so much more than some of my other like favorite books in the series. And I was wondering why, and it was kind of came down to like, Oh, this is like, a world I kind of understand and I'm not looking too far back on. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's it's very it's a very contemporary story, and it speaks to a time that I'm involved with music, and not like well before I was born. And I I started counting up, and this is if I'm if I'm not wrong, only the sixth book that covers an album that has come out since the series started. <laughs> yeah, which is pretty wild. <laughs> so you know this is like the perfect kind of like structure for a book like this, where it's not like, Oh, you're going to write a book on blonde on blonde. Like, okay, well what, what new are you going to bring to the table on blonde on blonde? You know, it's still living to talk about it. (laughs) Right. You know, it's like, it's, it's a new for the, for the series, a newer record and a newer band. And I thought that this is exactly how the band and this record should have been treated you know, with, with it being kind of a newer thing and about it where you can't just like go to the library and just pull a stack of national books. Like you can someone like Dylan or whoever, there's just so many great insights uh, because of those interviews uh, that, that makes it a really, really fun read. Uh, and genuinely laughed out loud multiple times reading it, <laughs> mostly because of Brian Devendorf, I, I, I think is the one who got me the most. Um, he's definitely the the funniest the funniest of the bunch they're all hilarious uh in their own ways and uh, they've <laughs> had a lot of hijinks uh over the years um <laughs> great storytellers uh, it's an interesting time frame because like memories do fade and get convoluted and a lot of you know t- sometimes people just didn't know or didn't remember but i think thanks to the, <laughs> the number of people i got to talk to i was able to you know kind of detective a lot of this uh together but um it is you know even only 15 years uh, in that time like a lot a lot can fade <laughs> and uh, i got into a couple pinches where i was like these stories are conflicting and i go back to peter Cadis, the producer or aaron and like their stories like just did not add up like in t- terms of timelines and like neither of them would like concede so <laughs> it's an interesting lesson on history itself like uh, <laughs> you can only trust it so much or you can only do so much and you know telling it truthfully Aaron and Matt particularly have this like almost rose colored lens through which they're seeing all of the tension in that, in that dynamic. I I wonder, I wonder what they would have said about it a year later, as opposed to 15 years later from, from that experience. Cause it it seems like, or maybe they're just two people who really do enjoy uh, it it being a battle. I think, I think, they really do. I think this is really revealing of like what it takes to be in a band and 
and there's a lot of things I learned about that, but one of them is being able to like really put up with conflicts. Um, I'm, I'm someone who works best alone. I think, uh, like I, I couldn't imagine, you know, butting heads over and over and over and over again about creative decisions, uh, like those guys are, and they all, you know, I think Matt and Aaron are definitely have the most kind of, a combative relationship, um, creatively speaking, but like, uh, they all bring really strong opinions and different, um, musical tastes and perspectives, which is, I think at the heart of what makes the nationals music so kind of unique and complex and like brilliant. Cause they, I don't know, they, they just won't stop <laughs> fighting and perfecting. And, and I think Peter Cadis, the producer just like said, you know, something along the lines of like, you know, getting all five guys degree on anything is just the most painful process. Like he describes, you know, being in the recording studio with them is, you know, a rewarding, but very painful exercise. They go through iterations and iterations and, you know, so many versions of any track just to, just to get it to all of their liking. That's, I think that's what makes the national special. <laughs> the The book also generally is a really great depiction of what it is to be in a band. You know, like I, I thought there was a lot of great stuff in there and just like what it is to kind of like find friends and find common ground and then kind of start goofing off and then start and take it seriously. And then you're big in Paris. And then you're like, well, is this serious now? And then like, when do you leave your job? And how do you like do freelance graphic design stuff while you're touring? And, you know, and then, and then how do you really go for it and make the record that like, like, okay, let's quit our jobs and be musicians. Now, how do you, how do you make that step? And how do you do that without killing each other? And how do you do that when, everyone these people are twins these people are brothers uh, a lot of arguments a lot of jokes you know and yeah i yeah, really a lot of struggles <laughs> yeah mostly struggle especially yeah. in the nationals case in those early years you don't spend an unnecessary amount of time on background on who these guys are you know you kind of get to this stage pretty quickly but you spend a significant amount of time up front with kind of this this experience of them releasing alligator and what that meant for them. And that, that first, you know, th this, this first label release on beggars, what that meant for them, that kind of first step that it took for them. And yet also realizing that even after the success of alligator, the point you make so well in the book is that boxer was still this kind of make it or break it thing that alligator was in many ways, an indie darling release but it wasn't enough for them to make a living off of. And these, by this point, these are all guys in their, you know, early thirties. And so th this is, this is something where like that window to make it is, is really closing quickly. And so boxer in many ways becomes this fork in the road of either this album is going to work out and they're going to, and they're going to have a career or, it's it's going to fall flat and that's the end of the story and that's the last we ever hear of the national it really it really feels like those are the stakes for this album as you kind of lay it out in the book 
And so before we get into some other things, talk to us, talk to us if you can, just about the sense you got from the band of, of how high those stakes were for this release. I think in the band's mind, whether, you know, this was, you know, more imagined or not, like this was their last chance um, to really make it as a band together. Because I think a, a lot of people don't even, aren't even aware that like the national like has been around since 1999. Um, uh, like in nobody, literally nobody <laughs> knew about them until much later. Um, they were around in New York, you know, at the same time that the strokes and the yeahs and Interpol were blowing up and, you know, like leading the charge of this like New York rock revival, like the national was there. They were like, you know, at the same bars and playing the same venues and like nobody gave them any attention. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, they didn't fit like that same kind of mold of like, you know, this, you know, cool guys and leather pants kind of like aesthetic. Um, but you know, they were putting out valuable music and learning along the way. But, you know, in that time between like a boxer and when they, you know, they're, they're, when they started, like they were, uh, just, uh, you know, struggling, <laughs> like, like giving it the old college try, but, you know, couldn't even get signed to a label until alligator. They were, they were funding their own tours, their own recording, um, out of their own pockets going into debt. Matt did most of the funding because he was making the most money. Um, but you know, like, and they were touring just like animals playing like, you know, hundred plus shows a year um, driving around Europe in a van and like, that's a, a rough lifestyle. Um, when, you know, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And, um, I think by the time, you know, alligator came around, that was like their first glimmer of hope. They got signed to a real respected indie label and they got some acclaim. Um, and, but you know, they had a few setbacks and, uh, like they, they, uh, there was a whole lot of pressure for them to, you know, actually do something more than, you know, um, get a few good reviews. Um, and financially, I think they just couldn't really stomach going on if, if Boxer wasn't a success. So, um, you know, and then creatively they, I think they, they realized, you know, that like, I don't know <laughs> if what they were doing wasn't getting attention, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe they weren't so hot after all. So, um, all those ambitions and like, you know, fears and this, you know, this, this, it all boiled up to boxer. Um, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned both in the book and you mentioned in that question, the idea of getting, getting some, some good reviews and especially in that time, there was a moment in the early to mid two thousands where as music was moving more and more, more music was being, you know, shared on kind of peer to peer networks, more music was being downloaded on MP3 blogs. You, you kind of, you know, kind of music was moving, <laughs> music was moving online and most of it was moving online without any way to compensate the artist for it. And, and so because of that, you also had this time where music blogs 
and you know huge you know huge kind of uh, music review sites that we think of now places like stereo gum and pitchfork kind of all have their genesis um, you know, right before this period of time and really kind of come to life in, in new ways during this period of time. But Pitchfork gives a review for Alligator and then gives a great review for Boxer. But in many ways, for indie music during this period of time, bands were kind of really living and dying on that Pitchfork review. And so I wonder if our listeners, maybe those of our listeners who don't remember what it was like in those times or are too young to remember what it was like in those times, for our listeners, help us understand how um, how a place like Pitchfork had that kind of weight behind them, had that kind of uh, this this picture of being kind of the arbiter of what is going to be the next good music or the next cool music or the next you know hipster music, whatever. And then really the question is now in 2022, whether it's Pitchfork or Stereo Gum or like traditional venues like Rolling Stone or, or, or places like that, does the review really matter as much anymore? Are, are, are magazines and sites like that, do they have the same value because of the kind of democratization of the music industry because of the internet? Do, do they have the same pull they once did? They don't, I would say. I mean, uh, um, you know, like their their power definitely has diminished um, since then. I mean, uh, for one thing, there's just like more outlets, more voices um, outside of even, you know, written mediums. You know, there's YouTube channels like The Needle Drop, there's Reddit, there's, you know, people discover music, there's Spotify algorithms, and of course, you know, argue endlessly on and share their love things on social media. Um, even, you know, and even in the print world, like, you know, the New York Times covers these bands in a way they didn't back then. But like you said, like, you know, back in the early to mid 2000s, like, there was this, there was this kind of new frontier in a way it was, uh, you know, the MP3 blogs were everything for this particular music genre and community. I mean, that's where the indie rock community lived and discovered and shared news and opinions and gossip. Um, it was very unprofessional and flawed in many ways. Um, but it was an exciting, cool democratization. Um, especially when, you know, it comes to like, um, how, you know, like I grew up reading Rolling Stone, but Rolling Stone didn't cover these bands. Um, at least not, you know, in enough of a way that like I wanted, it was such an exciting time in indie rock. So, you know, it was really this kind of digital extension of like zine culture in the eighties or nineties, um, brought online. And, you know, this is, this is, you know, and out of that MP3 kind of blog, community you had um pitchfork which kind of grew out of that um but was you know comparatively more professional and it you know it became the authority that everyone looks to um no matter you know whether you agreed with them or not you know people checked the pitchfork review um and when especially you know when it came to like the best new music music badge on top of their you know 10 point rating system like that had the single most influence um on the community about you know whether like you know an album or band was the greatest thing on earth at that moment or you know 
they could just as easily convince you that, uh, you know, this band totally sucks, <laughs> whether, you know, <laughs> don't even trust your ears kind of thing. But, um, and, and famously pitchfork would admit themselves, like they have gotten some reviews really wrong o- over the years. And they've, they've recently, they were just celebrating their 25th anniversary kind of made it, made a habit of going back and correcting some reviews. They got horribly wrong in the process. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you ever want to be entertained, look up their interview or their review of Jet from, <laughs> I forgot what year, but I think they kept that one up for a sentimentality's sake, but they weren't always kind or even professional about it. But, um, but yeah, um, it was an interesting time. And uh, in the book, I interview a couple of former pitchfork writers who, you know, admitted so much, uh, you know, like, yeah, we had more power than we know what to do with. Um, but, um, yeah, there's a, there's one, one of my favorite chapters in the book, um, is, um, I think really takes this whole point home, um, uh, with the, um, the chapter about, uh, the, their nationals 2005 tour with, uh, with clap your hands, say, yeah. 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 Uh, it was just, a great, it was a great chapter to talk, <laughs> talk to us about that because I, I, I wish we could just share that with our listeners. And by the way, for our listeners, we want to tell you wherever you buy books, you can go right now and pick up the latest 33 and a third volume on boxer written by Ryan Pinkard. It is a worthy read. You're going to be glad that you picked it up, but Ryan, tell us a little bit about that chapter. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's kind of a wild story. Um, like, uh, so, you know, alligator gets released in April of 2005. Um, and it's, you know, it's their, it's not their debut album, but for all intents and purposes, it kind of is, it's their debut on beggars banquet, a uh, real indie label. And, um, and for the first time, you know, they get some respectable kind of reviews and momentum behind them. Like suddenly there people are talking about the national in the pitchfork kind of blogosphere. And, um, this is kind of, you know, uh, this allows them to kind of schedule their first major headlining tour. Um, and, uh, on that tour, they, they book, uh, a then unknown Brooklyn band called clap your hands, clap your hands. Say yeah. So fast forward to June, the tour is yet to begin and clap your hands. Say, yeah, releases their self-titled debut, um, which, uh, pitchfork awards with, um, a pretty bananas 9.0 out of 10 review and their best new music badge. Um, and all of a sudden everyone is talking about clap your hands. Say, yeah, uh, you know, reporting their every move. Um, and you know, it is a great record. <laughs> like, yeah, like uh, I love that record. Um, and I probably discovered it before the national because, you know, the pitchfork bump, um, whether it deserves 9.0 is maybe debatable, but, um, you know, I think a lot of that on top of just being a really catchy record with, uh, the, their great song, um, by the skin of my yellow front teeth. Um, I think there's, you know, I think the, that record was also just kind of validating this, this entire new kind of ecosystem that this indie community had kind of built up where, you know, this record was self-recorded, self-released without a label and they even did their own PR. And so I think there was a lot of, you know, extra kind of, uh, attention and, you know, kindness in the review given it 
given to it for that. Um, in any case, um, the effects it has is that, um, clap your hands, say, yeah, or, you know, a bigger name than the national, um, overnight. And so when the nationals headlining tour kicks off, uh, that fall, um, every show sells out, but when they start playing gigs, um, this phenomenon occurs where everyone comes to see clap your hands. So yeah. And then half the crowd empties out before the national even come on stage. Um, which is really not what she wants. <laughs> um, uh, and you know, it was, I think a humongous embarrassment for the band, um, which only got worse when, you know, the whole blogosphere starts debating it and talking about it online and, uh, you know, deciding, you know, who's, who's, you know, is this a great injustice? Like, was, you know, I think clap your hands say, yeah, maybe lost in terms of, you know, like a lot of backlash for this, but you know, they, they're the pitchfork fueled like hype was so big that they, you know, ended up like having to flip the bill so that the national was demoted to the opener. Um, and, um, besides demonstrating, you know, the power of pitchfork, um, and hype at the time, um, the, that tour, um, according to the band was so humiliating and painful, but it like, uh, very much put a chip on their shoulder and fueled their ambitions going into boxer, because I think they recognized just how competitive this kind of indie rock landscape was. And, uh, they knew if they ever were going to make it and already knowing this, you know, might be their last chance. Like they had to pull out all the stops. And so, uh, I think that has a lot to do with why, uh, you know, boxer becomes this, uh, huge leap in terms of their sound as well as the hardest album they ever made. <laughs> right. I mean, something kind of great that you can't plan for happens there. They become the underdogs and they become a band that you want to root for if you're a fan of them, or if you're not a fan of them, if you just don't like clap your hands and say, yeah, all of a sudden you're like, you know, if you don't like them, it's like, well, it gives you somebody else to root for. It's like, well, I hope these national guys make their comeback, <laughs> you know? So it's uh, it, it gets some sort of fan base. If it's may, it may not be the desired one, but it does create this like new kind of sensation for the national, even that kind of makes it perfect that the follow-up is called boxer. You know, now they are these underdogs who are the underdogs and kind of the first wave of this New York revival. But in the mid two thousands, kind of like this, like second wave happening. And so they get there and they're like, wow, we're even on the bottom of the second wave too. Um, so you just, they spend that whole decade trying to come out on top.
What makes Boxer for you the quintessential national record? I can do that. Um, I think there's a few reasons. Um, I mean, for one thing, I just think it's flawless. <laughs> like, I don't think there's, you know, I think it's perfectly sequenced. There's, uh, there's, there's not, you know, an unnecessary track on it. It has this really beautiful narrative arc to it, which I think, you know, um, and I think, I don't know, it's, it's, it's elegant. It's not the most complex or even the most, you know, musically daring album, um, that they would make. They, you know, cause they, you know, a friend of mine, um, once said, uh, you know, like the national just gets 10% better, like every album. And in a way that's true. Every time they come out with a new record, I'm like blown away. And I think it's my favorite one, but, but, um, I think, you know, now the boxer is just, I don't know, in many ways, a perfect record, um, in terms of the album format. Um, but, um, furthermore, I would say what makes it quintessential is that, um, I mean, for one, it represents their most significant breakthrough. Their, their whole story has been a series of minor breakthroughs, you know, one little steps at a time. There's never been one moment, but, um, this was, as we already discussed, you know, the album that allowed them to keep making records. Um, so I think it's really significant in that way. Um, the, and, and like Mikai was saying, I mean, like the, the, the title boxer, um, very much represents like, you know, basically the first chapter of their career, this, this year's long struggle to try to make it, um, against a whole lot of setbacks or just popular indifference. Um, it was the album and financially, like we discussed it allowed them to quit their day jobs and, you know, have a real fan base and, you know, continue (laughs) going and growing and making these, these, you know, these albums that continue to blow our minds. Um, I think like on a lyrical perspective, um, like this is, this is the moment where Matt's songwriting fully matured. And that is entirely to do with his then girlfriend, now wife, Corinne. Um, um, first time, the first time, you know, they got, they were fully collaborating on lyrics. Um, and, you know, she was at the time a fiction editor at the New Yorker and she really challenged Matt to, you know, take on new influences, read new poets and writers. Um, and she herself wrote, I know a lot of memorable lines um, that, you know, have lasted 15 years and I'm sure will <laughs> last longer. Um, um, I also adore um, how this record is very much, you know, um, like many of the songs, including Apartment Story, Brainy, Slow Show, Gospel, Ada, like they're, you know, they, they're about their relationship. But I just, I just love that, you know, that love story that showing the ups and downs of, you know, these two people who are trying to figure each other out and whether they want to, you know, whether they want to be together. (laughs) And that's Uh, definitely a side of the national that people don't think about, you know, they, they, they're kind of thought of as like mopey white guy music, (laughs) 
or dad rock or sad rock or sad dad rock. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, there are a lot of like really sweet songs on this. I mean, Brainy's like a sweet song that like borders on like stalker, yeah. but in a way that's like still sweet. Um, but then you get, yeah, these like slow show and apartment story that are, especially apartment story um, mm-hmm. that are just these great love songs. And, and speaking of, you know, Corinne, I love that they've reached the point now where uh, she's the only credited writer on like the opening song of I'm easy to find. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's just like, that's, you know, she's not there just like, she's not just like how John would be like, and Yoko was my muse. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. no, she's writing these songs. Yeah. So. She's, 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 uh, she might not be like writing, you know, like 50% of the lyrics, but she's editing everything from that. And, you know, like mm-hmm. they're, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he would not be the same songwriter without her. Um, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful partnership and it really completes, you know, this, uh, this this interesting setup in the band where you have you know two different sets of brothers who bring in their own kind of built-in dynamics and then matt finally kind of i think corinne finally allowed him to have (laughs) someone uh someone to kind of tag team his unique kind of angle with yeah i don't don't think it's overstating at all to say that you could think of corinne as like the sixth member of the band in 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 really her her role um, her, her her entering into the story, and again, you covered this so well in the book, but but her influence on Boxer in all of the albums since, I think also is is a big reason behind that huge jump you see between Alligator and Boxer is that introduction of Corinne, because you do, you, as great a writer as Matt is, all great writers need a great editor, and, and he provides that that tension for him that makes him so much better. And I, I just love the way you cover that in the book. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't know. She did, uh, aside from their love story, I, I think, you know, her perspective also, and in defense of this just being the greatest national record, I, I think just, to, I love how many really strong themes they develop um, in this, you know, this whole record has just so much represents so much about, um, I don't know talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the white collar working men blues, uh, or, um, you know, something like a squalor Victoria or racing like a pro. Um, and then you have, um, I don't know, this whole kind of post nine 11 kind of like feeling on something like fake empire. Um, you know, a whole lot of literary references. And, uh, you know, I think the, the, I think in the book, I say, I point out, um, I think the most, I don't know, the, the line, the lyric that wraps everything up thematically is um, in Mistaken for Strangers. The whole kind of feeling of this record is just, you know, that captures everything, just like what it feels like to be like in your like early to mid thirties, like, uh, which is, and it has this interesting, like, full circle meaning for me who was you know 17 when the record came out but i'm now the age that like these guys were when they were making this and like the the lyrics only resonate you know stronger than ever because of that you know you were talking about think of you you know mikhail was saying it's easy to kind of pigeonhole national as like the you know sad mopey white guy rock or like the sad dad music but i do think a big part of that is the fact that these, these are guys who are older than their peers that 
the bands who are kind of breaking out in indie rock in Brooklyn at the same time, for the most part are at least five years younger than them on average yeah, or at any time in general. Like and most bands are, you know, folks in there, guys and gals in there, you know, <laughs> their early twenties, uh, sometimes yeah. younger. I mean, look at them like touring now. They're all in their early 50s, and they'll have like Corny Barnett or Big Thief with them. All people in their late 20s, early 30s is like, there's just a great Mm -hmm. age difference on that bill. Mm -hmm. But but I think also because of that, you do get people that are, you know, choosing like these huge adult decisions. And it's, it's one of the things that I think it's easy to forget. Like (laughs) Matt Berninger (laughs) is is a creative director for a huge design firm in New York city at the time that he's trying to also start like really making it with, with an actual, like he's a person that has a pretty nice white collar career laid out in front of him. Yeah. Making six figures. Yeah. I mean like when, when this, when this band, when the, what boxer allows them to do is really choosing a, not a, not a kind of one life versus the other, but, but it's, it's choosing one type of kind of domesticity over another. And so I, I do think that there is a maturity thematically to, to their music that if, you know, again, it's one of the things you talk about in the book, if you're a 22, 23 year old who is, you know, maybe just three or four years removed from nine 11 and you're still living with that kind of paranoia and tension in the back of your mind going, all right, we gotta, you know, we gotta live all of our life right now. I don't know that the national is for you, but if you're 30, if you know, if, if you're, you know, going into your first serious relationship or coming out of your divorce or whatever, like, this, this is the band that is, is perfectly designed for you. And so there's something uh, about that, that I, I wonder how many folks have had Ryan, your experience where this is a band you may have loved musically, but thematically you have now kind of aged in mm-hmm. to what they write about. And, and I, so I wonder how, how many more new fans the national will get as kind of the next generation ages into the, the themes of their music. Stay out super late tonight Picking apples, making pies Put a little something in our lemonade And take it with us, put it half away In a fake empire We're half away in a fake empire Tiptoe through our shiny city With our diamond slippers on Do our gay ballet nights Bluebirds on our shoulders We're half awake In a fake empire We're half awake In a fake Empire. 
um, the, the other thing I would add, uh, in terms of, um, defending, you know, this is, uh, the quintessential national record, um, is just, you know, on top of Matt's like fully matured songwriting is, I think it's the, the album where the band really fully realized their sound and everything they want to do with it. Um, whereas alligator was a straight up rock record, a great rock record. Um, and the earlier albums were, had a whole lot of inspiration and interesting moments, but were all over the place. Boxer was, you know, and had true kind of concise vision. And above all, it was just so much more ambitious with, you know, Bryce um, Desner in particular, bringing his whole classical music background and incorporating odd time signatures, complex arrangements with strings and horns and flutes and bassoons. They were writing songs on piano for the first time. Um, and, you know, they've obviously only, only taken that and run <laughs> much, much further. Um, like, like Boxer now seems kind of quaint in terms of like, uh, the complexity, uh, of their musicianship. Um, but, but it was, you know, a pretty, pretty enormous leap that kind of set the template for everything they did after. Right. And even writing things that they can't themselves even play, right? Like writing beyond their capability as musicians, like, okay, well, I can't, I wrote a right-handed piano part and a left-handed piano part, but I can't do them at the same time. <laughs> Let me go tap like Sufjan or Thomas Bartlett and I'll have them, you know, play on this record. Totally. And um, that's a great thing to bring up because, you know, it's also the record where they begin collaborating outside the band in a, a, a big way. Um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, this, the, people who are playing these new instruments um or having Sufjan come in and you know kind of save the day to kind of bring a couple tracks home um just with some you know little piano voicings um leading leading to like them you know in short time you know short time afterward like doing these massive compilations um the, like the Desners are like uh, coordinating, they're cult collaborating, you know, like producing albums and um, like, you know, it kind of speaks for itself today with Aaron producing for everyone from Taylor Swift to Sharon Van Etten. Um, it's, and, and I guess Matt, you know, working with Booker T. Jones and uh, I don't know if it's a... <laughs> I think they're working with uh, Bob Weir. Like it's it's uh, mm -hmm. it's so much you know part of their DNA in and outside of the band. It's like you know that's what they do, <laughs> and this is where it began. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, if you're listening to this and and you're going, guys, this is this is two episodes in four weeks you have done on the national. And if if you're listening to this and you're still not a fan of the national. If you're a Taylor Swift fan and you discovered this podcast through our recent episode with Folklore, uh, let me just tell you, you don't have an album like Folklore. <laughs> Folklore does not exist were it not for the evolution that happened for Aaron Desner during Boxer. So if, if, if you're still trying to figure out, all right, why are you guys talking about the National so much? 
all of the things you like that Aaron and Bryce Desner are connected to, those things all happen now because of what happened 15 years ago on this album. Hater, don't talk about reasons why you don't want to talk about reasons why you don't want to talk. Now that you got everybody you consider sharp all alone, all together, all together in the dark. Leave it all up in the air. Leave it all up in the air. Leave it all up in the air. Hate it with the sounds of your hearts in a song. Try to be speechless for a minute If you think you're gonna faint Go out in the hallway Let them all have your name Ada, don't stay in the lake too long It lives alone and it barely knows you It'll have a nervous breakdown and fall Into a thousand pieces around This is a podcast about great albums and the um, ridiculous nature of making lists of great albums. Um, So here's the question. What are your top five albums? And we understand that this can be a difficult question. So this could be what you think are the best albums of all time. This could be your personal favorite five albums of all time. This could just be the five albums you're listening to right now, or maybe five underappreciated records that you really want to make a case for to be included in the canon of great albums. You got, um, I did prepare and I did twist it a little. Um, but, um, yeah, then like writing this book, you know, really brought me back to like, you know, a really amazing time in indie music. Um, when I was, you know, 17 years old. So, um, I thought I'd make a list of my favorite records from 2007, which I might posit as arguably the greatest year in indie rock ever. Um, and to prove my point, I have, um, a list of over 20, but, um, (laughs) uh, I'll start with, uh, 10. Is that all right? (laughs) 10 is perfect. Okay. Um, I can keep going. <laughs> um, so I'll start with Modest Mouse. Um, we were dead before the ship even sank. Um, not even close to my favorite Modest Mouse record. Um, Arcade Fire, Neon Bible, um, also from 2007. Um, so I'll also throw out Sound of Silver by LCD. Um, that was another beautiful moment of like discovering a band live first and then just falling in love <laughs> um feist the reminder great album masterpiece album. um talk about i don't know flawless down to the finest detail um sunset rubdown random spirit lover i i don't know if people remember this album or this band that much anymore but at the time like um spencer krug the mastermind behind sunset rubdown also a member of wolf parade and um a number of other bands um i don't know uh, this is kind of this is this this is just 
one of those bands that just broke my mind open of like possibilities of what you know you can do with <laughs> music um it's it's so weird strange halloweenish lyrics and the the the, I don't even know the adjectives to describe the sound and the musicianship, but it's it's a wild record. Um, then we have Beirut, uh, the Flying Club Cup, um, a whole from a, you know blow my mind in a whole nother angle. What is this weird like like Balkan folk inspired music like uh, like like, like <laughs> and people came around, but like uh, uh, you know. It, super strange and so beautiful and i mean that record me and like my best friend in high school at the time so much that we skipped our junior prom to drive out to la just to see you know the closest gig they were playing um because we needed to see that band <laughs> um i'll zoom through the rest but um devender banhart smoky rolls down thunder canyon also not my favorite devender album but um released in 2007 and uh i don't know i uh, he's still, he's still doing his thing, but those, those out that the albums he put out in that decade were just, I don't know, some of my absolute favorites. He's, uh, he'll always be underrated, even though he, he got some attention. <laughs> um, they have animal collective strawberry jam. Um, probably my favorite animal collective album. It's a great album. Um, Radiohead and rainbows. I don't think needs much defending. Um, and then um i'm proud to say that i'm uh um i was there when Bonivere released forever forever ago before it got re-released and everyone else heard about it in 2008 uh i remember when a um, middle school friend sent me a link to um forever forever ago with the old original album art and i was like whoa <laughs> Well, Ryan, we can't thank you enough for doing this. Um, one more time for our listeners, tell us about the book, where they can find it, and how they can stay up to date with what's going on in your world. <laughs> uh, well, thank you guys so much. Um, my name is Ryan Pinkard. Uh, I'm not don't have much of a presence on social media, but you can find me on Instagram at Ryan Pinkard. Um, and you can find the book, uh, Boxer, um, as part of the 33 and third series from Bloomsbury, um, just about anywhere you can buy books. Um, I will warn you that, um, if you're looking to buy the record in the next couple months, um, demand has been very high and our first pressing is almost already sold out, but there will be more coming if you find that it's sold out <laughs> um there's more coming um you can find it amazon or ideally any independent bookstore or record store that stocks it <laughs> yeah and uh Mikai and i have both read it and uh um we will we will say even more nice things about it um in in our conclusion of the episode but ryan thanks so much for being our guest and uh for letting people hear more about one of our favorite bands and uh, making a case for, in many ways, their breakthrough album uh, as, as their best. Great talking to you guys. Later. Now, I have some interesting things here that maybe you would be interested in and maybe our listeners also. 
So we we mentioned before that Rolling Stone, right, and their updated 500 did not include one national record. All right. Um, but I have here, if you want to hear it, NME's 500 albums that they did in 2013. Would you like to hear how they ranked these national records? Oh, I would. At 162, Boxer. Pretty high. At 220, Alligator. At 465, High Violet. And the year it came out, at 478, Trouble Will Find Me. Now, this list was made in 2013, and the album came out in 2013, and they were just really putting their flag on the ground on that one, which yeah. I appreciate. Yeah, I, I wonder if I wonder if that order, I wonder if that order of national albums would remain the same if they did the list today. No chance. I mean, it's almost been 10 years, so it would, it would have to change. Um, now, there's another list. The Pitchfork Readers 200 albums since Pitchfork started. Want to hear that list? Oh, please. At 34, Boxer. At 57, High Violet. At 135, Trouble Will Find Me. And then at 179, Alligator. There are two interesting things here. First of all, Enemy, not an American publication. And a big part of Ryan's book is that the national was big in Europe well before they were big in America. And and that's how they got onto like four AD, you know, and and beggars banquet. Right. Um, So, and that was because of the album alligator and then boxer elevated them even further. Right. And then pitchfork readers, of course, right. The book is also writes a lot about how pitchfork reviews and the, you know, best new music kind of signifier on their site is a big deal. And those four records have been really well reviewed and the band plays at like Pitchfork Festival uh, pretty often. So, you know, Pitchfork seems to still have um, a pretty good influence, at least when it comes to listeners and this band. So here's the thing that I find myself thinking, and, and you and I kind of communicated this today via text. I think there are valid arguments to be made for Boxer, High Violet, or Trouble Will Find Me being the best national album. I I don't... I think Alligator's a really good album. I think it's a really good album. I think that Alligator is a brilliant feat of mixing. I, I, I think that... It, it, it what a picture of a producer and a mixer's ability to take what was otherwise some very very raw audio and, and do some magic work that I, I think for for as lo-fi as alligator sounds I think there's a whole lot that is happening there um, and, and and I also get that alligator sounds very much like the time that it came out in. So you have to remember that when alligator came out, it's, it's right after the Strokes second album. Um, it's, you know, right after the period of the, the bands. So 
It's a couple um, years after. It's, it's 2005, so yeah. But I mean, not not far removed from that kind of like lo-fi garage rock. Yeah. Room on Fire's 2003. Fever to Tell by Yeah 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 is 2003. Yeah, which and Sad Songs for Dirty Lovers is 2003. Yeah, but this is on the wake of, you know, kind of an additional wave. It's the same year as Sufjan's Illinois. Mm-hmm. Uh, a year after Funeral uh, by Arcade Fire. So there's uh, kind of like another kind of indie wave happening. Yeah, in 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 the new indie wave that's happening, you know, again, uh, Pitchfork's album of the year in 2004 is Funeral by Arcade Fire. In 2005, it's Illinois by Sufjan. Like, th- there is... A, in, in The indie rock darlings of that second wave are... Um, are thinking far, far, far larger, far more grandiose about what the music's going to sound like. And so in some ways, Alligator sounds like kind of the lo-fi response to, to that. But, but again, it's, it's a great album. I don't know that I, I would really believe anyone who was arguing for Alligator as the best national album. Um, just, just because I think Boxer is so clearly better. And I think, you know, in, and I think high violet is better. I think trouble will find me is better. I, you know, I, I think if your argument is for alligator is their third or fourth best album. Sure. But I, I don't believe anyone who's like alligators their best album, but boxer to trouble will find me. I think you can take any of those three albums and say, and if you say this is your favorite national album, or this is what you think is the best, I, I'd buy that argument. I, I may not agree with it, but I, I certainly understand where that argument is coming from. And so I, I'm, I, I find the Pitchfork reader list less surprising than I find the NME list from 2013. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, but I mean that the time that list is being made is. Mm-hmm. Those albums haven't had time to have an impact. So, Micaiah, in many ways, this is a bonus episode. As much for us to talk about another national album we love in a book that we really enjoyed reading and to have a guest on to help promote that book that we hope does very well. Um, but this is a bonus episode that is really rooted in the idea of asking the question, did we get this wrong? And I don't think we did. Yeah, I think I think boxer is important to keep using this metaphor. I think boxer gets them in the ring, right? It gets them in the conversation of one of the great bands of the 21st century. Trouble will find me. That's when they get the belt. That's the victory lap. You know, that's that's how I think of that record. Now, uh, it's a preference thing too. You know, it's. if you like boxer, maybe what you don't like about trouble find me is maybe it's a little bit, their sound is maybe a little bit too cleaned up. Maybe with what trouble will find me. It's, it's just a much more polished album. Um, you know, and so maybe, you know, it could come down to preference uh, like that. Uh, but even with it being a more polished album, it's still, there's still some like wonkiness in it. They're still drone it out and make these weird choices where it's not, overly produced because you can i mean because with sleep well beast and i'm easy to find those are really polished mm-hmm. up records 
And Trouble Will Find Me is the last one before they go all the way into a very polished record. And uh, there's still like a resonance of that, a remnant of a kind of a dirtier kind of sound of what they're trying to do. Like classically trained musicians who grew up on punk rock music. What's that sound like? Trouble Will Find Me, Mm -hmm. you know? I really do believe that that you're right. This is, that's, that's when the title has been awarded. You know, yeah, they've, yeah. they've been in the ring now for a while, but it's them on top. And I think trouble will find me. I think the, the statement piece that trouble will find me is this kind of planting the flagging ground and saying, this is who we are. Here's our kind of masterwork. I think that also is what gives them the freedom to, not just pursue different collaborations, but to, again, not feel a need to repeat what they've done in the past. I think that the evolution we've seen in the band since then is, is in many ways born out of the success of trouble will find me. And so, so again, I, I look my thoughts on boxer have, have changed. Boxer has, has, has come up the list for me. Um, I would give Boxer a higher rating today than I would have two weeks ago, but I still think Trouble Will Find Me is their very best album. Well, listener, uh, thanks for this time staying with us in, uh, in, in hearing more about a band that we love. Uh, tell us your thoughts. Um, you know, we asked you this before about the national. Did we get this right? Um, tell us your thoughts. And also, by the way, pick up, pick up Ryan's book. And tell us what you think of the 33 and a third volume on Boxer, because it is really a great read. And we hope that you enjoy it as well. We're going to leave you now with my favorite song by The National. Mistaken for Strangers. Mistaken for Strangers. Strangers.